0: We have with us today the three principles of one of the most exciting projects in astrology today, the Hindsight Project. And let me turn it over to Robert Schmidt, who in many ways was the father of this little project, and have him introduce his his colleagues here and uh, tell a little bit about what Project Hindsight is.
1: I'm Robert Schmidt. <laughs> this, is, wait a minute, this is Rob Hand, and that's... Robert Zola. so you can, you can keep us straight. Um, we are translating all of the Greek astrological material that survives in manuscript or in, in edited form. Um, we're starting with the uh, material that is basically part of the Western astrological tradition and that we probably will not confine ourselves to that, but that's where we're beginning. And right now, we have begun two tracks. Uh, we have a Greek track and a medieval Latin track. I'm the Greek translator, Robert Zoller, on the far right, here, is the medieval Latin translator. And Robert Hand, whom you should all recognize, is the general editor of the project. I translate the translation, that's what <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, believe us, is necessary. <laughs> so, um, this project began, was actually only announced uh, in April of this year, about three months ago, uh, where Rob made a, an announcement about the project at the Norwalk conference right. in Washington State. And it has had uh, a rather overwhelming response so far. We have astrologers, professional astrologers, uh, grassroots astrologers, uh, people who are maybe a little skeptical uh, at all levels. Uh, people have been supporting this project the way this is done Go
0: ahead. I just wanted you to tell them exactly what that support,
2: what the support means, means and how they yes. too
1: could be part of it what that means is that every month the translators at this, at this point, Robert Zoller and myself translate the unit of uh, astrological material from an original language that's usually about 75 pages in the original and as we do that we also annotate it fully uh, trying to explore difficulties and raise philosophical issues and at the same time Rob Hand is then trying to translate this into material that's more familiar to modern astrologers and sometimes this can be very difficult. Well, these booklets when they're done, uh, probably about 100 pages, we have one right here it's the first booklet published by the Hindsight Project and it is of Paulus Paulus Alexandrinus a Greek who wrote at the end of the 300s this work has never been translated into any modern language. It was translated in the Latin in the 1500s, and nobody has read it since then, which means nobody really has any idea what's in it. Even the scholars who did the critical edition and put it into book form evidently didn't pay too much attention to its content. Well, we chose this as the first work, and it's very representative of the kinds of things we're doing. It's done in booklet form. We consider this to be a provisional translation, and we, This is somewhat of a technical term for us. Since nobody has read this material for hundreds of years, it would be somewhat pretentious of us at this point to try to give a definitive translation of any one of these works for the simple reason that nobody understands a lot of these concepts and you can't get everything that you need to know from one work. So what we are doing is we are doing a first time through uh, instead of doing what scholars oftentimes do, is spend their entire lives or their entire career doing one work and doing what they think is a definitive edition, we think this is a very poor strategy. Instead, we are going to go racing through the entire corpus, doing the best translation we can on this monthly basis, and after this, after we've covered all the material and we find out the mistakes that we made in the early one, because we certainly make mistakes, then we will return and do more definitive editions, and these will be published in hardback form and we hope represent the, the fruits of hindsight and would be some permanent acquisition to the Western world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay guys, that's part of what you have to do. Yes, okay Bob. we have that, you've been through yes. that first book. You yes. did the translation, yes. you've read it. Tell me, tell me the most exciting thing you discovered in reading that book, in Um, doing that translation? I discovered
1: that this writer, who was considered to be a wretched writer, according to the scholars, actually had a very sophisticated philosophical understanding and symbolic understanding and mythological understanding, and he had embedded his astrological thinking into into that framework, into that
0: matrix. This was really quite amazing. And how about a usable piece of information? (laughs) I know that it feels to you as a scholar. Um, but For those of us who are out there, are we going to find out something that says, oh, well, if you have the sun square the moon, it really means this instead of that? One of the
2: things that that these two fellows did with that book is to solve the the pressing question of the dreaded (laughs) monomori, which which scholars here before have been unable to solve, has now been put in clear English and is a usable technique in, in uh, uh, this Alexandrian astrology. But for exactly what they are, I think you should hear what one of them Okay, so let's
0: hear about the dreaded monomoria.
3: The dreaded monomoria. The dreaded is not part of the <laughs> original you know, Um I Actually, well, the monomoria are, there are actually two systems in Paulus. The one, that, the one that got the epithet dreaded was a system in which each degree of a sign is ruled by a planet. And... In this particular case, the planetary rulerships are assigned according to complicity rulers, which is another layer of complexity. But uh, it turns out the system is used to rectify horoscopes. That's perfect. And in fact, uh, there are a number of ancient techniques that astrologers know of, the two most outstanding of the Truatine of Hermes and the Anamudar of Ptolemy. Well, there are at least four others in Paulus that are totally unknown to modern astrologers of a similar nature. So
0: that means that that there will be astrologers mining these little booklets for topics to talk about at conferences for at least from now to the end of the millennium, right? Oh, I think so. Yeah, (laughs) I hope so.
3: And I'm I'm sure that some of it will probably be very inspired and creative and some of it will probably be best left in the dustbin of history. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that what
0: provisional is all about? Exactly. Oh yes, yes.
3: Uh, the, to answer the question you asked of uh, Schmidt, mm-hmm. of myself, um, I already mentioned the sect issue. I don't want to go into that again in other context today, but uh, another one which I found personally enormously gratifying was several years ago I wrote an essay in my book of essays on astrology on the 13th harmonic and this was based on a reference in Neugebauer to a system of, that Greek astrologers used. And ever since I read that reference in Neugebauer, I was finding instance after instance after instance of this technique done differently from the way I described it in the essay. And I was beginning to wonder if Neugebauer had hallucinated and I had been led down the garden path mm-hmm. by Neugebauer. Well, there, High, Wide, and Handsome sitting in the middle of Paulus is exactly the method that I got from Neugebauer complete with examples of how to use it and what its significance is, including some things that uh, were noted by were noted by no one else, uh, and they also appear in these rectification techniques. So we not only have this technique supported by the polis, but also practical illustrations of its use.
0: Now, do you feel that, that this will make those of us who practice astrology with individuals better
1: astrologers?
3: Eventually. But there'll have to be a great deal of interpretation done between now and that. Not instantly, no. I see. more thoughtful, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> uh, one thing I am looking forward to eliminating is lines that begin. Well, the ancients said, and you're never going to find out who the who said ancient was. Or, gee, according to our method, according to our teachers, uh, this is an ancient practice. That we've already brought up the date. Again, no reference.
0: It, it, are there ancient astrology books in translation right
1: now? There's only Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, primarily. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and Manilius, and well, Manilius, but, but not, in Greek. In Greek, it's, a a, it's only Latin. It's uh, a relative term. Well, yes. Which is a relative term. I um, knew it was there. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, Bob Zoller, do you have uh, a track? Do you have a, a treatise ready to come
2: out? I have the Alcindys uh, on the stellar rays is already completed and come out probably by the 2nd of August. And what did you find exciting in that? Uh, well, it's a text on magic. And the, the oh, entire subject is uh, a very intriguing subject because the premise is, of course, uh, sort of tacitly addressed in this particular text, but something that modern astrologers are always troubled by, namely, once I figure out what the problem is, what do I do about it? And while this particular text doesn't give specific instructions as to what to do about it, it lays out a theory as to why something can be done about it, or how something might be able to be done about it. So uh, that, of course, is the first step. And uh, it alludes to, um, in, in an indirect fashion, it alludes to other known texts, which we also intend to translate, such as the tricks which are quite specific, and not quite as tightly philosophically conceived as this particular one. So they complement each other very nicely. And is this Latin material that you're
0: translating original material or is it Greek that was translated into Latin?
2: Well, this is an interesting question, really, because it shows the nature of the tradition. Uh, this text is by Al Kindi, a ninth century he was a ninth century Arab philosopher who was translating Greek texts into Arabic, and this is a Latin translation, which is all that survives of his Arabic translation of his Arabic work. Uh, it was an original work for him but it was based on his, his Greek translations of other, of other works. So uh, it's interesting that you see the actual transmission of knowledge from the Greeks to the Arabs, from the Arabs back to the Latins. And
0: there must be one of, one of the problems in all of this must be that you're finding things that... translations through multiple languages have altered what the originals were.
1: Yes, in some cases it appears that the intermediate language, even though it may have have shared part of the original meaning of of the concept then when it was further translated into English, uh, it lost all connection with the original. This happens in the the Greek term zodion we have the word zodiac, which is related to this, and that's the Greek word that corresponds to sign, sign of the zodiac and through the Latin translation of the word zideon into signum and signum into sign, we've lost all contact with the original semantic field of the Greek word. It's totally gone. We have no con- contact.
0: Are you and uh, Bob going to be overlapping any translations where you might translate something from the original Greek and he translates it from a Latin derivative and find, find out what that gap is? Well,
2: we're trying to stay away from... Uh, duplicating each other's efforts, but we are in contact all the time, comparing notes. Uh, For instance, just before we started this filming, we were talking about a situation where uh, the Latin tradition, Latin medieval tradition, speaks about a planet being in somebody's term, some other planet's term. Uh, But Bach has found that the reference to the terms in Greek is always in the plural. A planet in so many degrees is in the terms of another planet. Uh, so there are some subtleties of that sort that have to be looked at ultimately. Uh, also, one of the things that Rob just mentioned, the dota uh, which is basically a 13th harmonic, uh, may very well turn out to be, be uh, handled in the medieval system as the, uh, the Latin equivalent of the Samsas or the duodecima, or the duodenas, depending on the translation, uh, being just a 12-fold uh,
1: multiplication of position. There are a few cases of interesting overlap, though, where, for example, a work by Abu Bashar, very important for the, the. We will have an Arabic track eventually, we don't have it working yet, but very important in medieval times. Some of those uh, works in Arabic, even though they were based on Greek material, got translated back into Greek at different times. So there may be bits and fragments of Greek uh, Greek material that would be helpful for even finding out what was in the other tracks sometimes. And sometimes they would be translated from Greek into Arabic, then sometimes from Arabic into Greek again and then sometimes into Latin. So there are all kinds of confusing overlaps. In most cases, we would translate a very important work, for example, some of Abu Bashar's works in Latin would translate that even though the Arabic text might survive, we might then later translate it from Arabic because the the, Latin translation itself would have been so important historically, people would have learned from that rather than the original Arabic but then we would do the Arabic so that we could make a comparison with the actual truth of, the, of what you might say.
0: Do you expect this work to have repercussions in the scholarly community? For example, having works translated from ancient Greece that, that have never been translated before, that there are actually people who are not astrologers who would be interested in these translations?
3: Well, um, there are two different communities outside of astrology that would be interested in this material. One group, I am sure, we will attract attention of. The other one, we may attract attention of. Uh, conventional classes classical scholars uh, is the second group we may attract attention of. Yeah, that we may attract attention of, but um, I'm not. We're not really counting on that, and that will be interesting if it happens. But it isn't our primary concern. The other group, however, is people who are students of symbolism, uh, students of archetypal forms, psychotherapists. Uh, creative artists, uh, this kind, these areas, these people, I think, will be uh, interested much more rapidly than the than the orthodox academic community because they are more concerned with the quality of the material than they are its source.
0: And what will they be finding in this material? Will they be finding indications of Greek patterns of thought that were not known before? Oh, actually, much
3: more. Um, much more artistic than that for example the uh picatrix and the uh libra hermetis both have pictures descriptions of picture representations of sections of the zodiac uh, which allow you to get into the symbolism through completely non-intellectual non-linear non-rational means you just simply you know, look at the pictures and sort of allow them to resonate in your mind. It's a very new age kind of approach. and uh, Except, of course, that it was done over 2,000 years ago.
2: There's one other class of scholars who I think will probably also be interested in. Some, not all, but some of these texts. Uh, for instance, the Leap of at the very beginning, contains this list of decans to which Rob is referring. And it is uh, the list itself uh, associates a particular God name with each of these decans. These god names are, for the most part, Semitic god names, not Egyptian god names. Uh, so we run across The first decan D- of Aries, for instance, is uh, associated with a god named Sabahot. Uh, the, uh, we also find a yaus, which is clearly a corruption of yao. Uh, now, scholars that did, are working in the field of Gnosticism, in particular, are going to take note of this sort of thing uh, and see its relative, the interlinking between the astrological and the Gnostic uh, movements.
3: Hmm. <laughs> this goes on at the cutting room floor. This is a, it's
0: a nightmare in life. Sure. So do we have do we have any questions from our audience here today that you'd like to address to the Bobs?
2: To the Bobs. <laughs>
0: How long do you think that, oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about, Mark. Good
3: thing. This <laughs> 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 audience is dead, <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey,
0: wait, wake up, wake up. <laughs> Some of us are sleeping. Uh, one, of, one, of the, uh, one of the treatises that you're going to be <laughs> translating yes. sometime, I believe, in your December uh, your, your December treatise is going to be on weather prediction, yes. And uh, it seems to me that you could find an entire group of people very excited that you actually came the up with, yes. uh, and everybody else. I mean, weather is yes. big, big business in America. There's a whole weather channel on TV. Do you see yourself being invited on to do the morning weather?
3: Uh, who knows? If I we wouldn't <laughs> to that. <laughs> I wouldn't care to hold my breath waiting. <laughs> However, there is
1: material here which could, just historically speaking, be important for people doing weather prediction because there's a um, you, the real early Greeks, and we're talking about the Greeks contemporary with Plato, uh, were, even if they may have not been doing astrology in, in the horoscopic, uh, of the horoscopic variety, were clearly correlating meteorological events and basic weather with the positions of the fixed stars, particularly the helical risings and settings of those stars. And this work by Ptolemy, which will appear uh, in the middle or toward the end of this year, uh, is in fact contains a catalog our calendar in which every day of the Alexandrian year is correlated to a certain weather prediction. On the first day of Thoth, which was the beginning of their year, you can expect that the uh, Etesian winds will begin to blow at a certain latitude, whereas there will be thunder and lightning over here and so forth. Now these were actually empirical observations that have been compiled over a number of centuries by leading Greek astronomers, contrary to what uh, the most of the academics would would believe these these were the primary astronomers of ancient times. Eudoxus, Hipparchus, and so forth were all trying to correlate the basic weather patterns with uh, with positions of the stars, particularly the rising and setting. And so there's so much of this material that it at least could be uh, it could be compared to to modern weather patterns. However, we, we would have to realize that the, mo- the modern environment, the, the modern weather, weather patterns are not solely influenced by natural events any longer because of you know, smokestacks and all kinds of other things that are interfering with the natural pattern. So you would, you would have to certainly compensate for anything like that. Plus, there may have just been climate changes and whatnot. But yet the fact that the Greeks did this with some regularity and some precision uh, leads us to think that, that maybe this should be looked into again. But even Ptolemy himself said that it needed to be supplemented. The, mm-hmm. the celestial weather predicting needed to be supplemented with, with actually more planetary material. You needed to determine where uh, the major planets were at, at the same time as the stars were aligned in the But
2: setting. Well, maybe the Syrians and the, uh, the uh, people in Israel would be interested in the Athenian winds. They might. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
4: I, I have a question. Or, I don't know if it's relevant or not. I was always told or kind of heard that um, the church fathers um, always used astrologers and so on, and then it fell in this repute at some point. Would your scholarly work, by any chance, uh, give respect again or honor to the astrologers that may have advised popes in ancient times or not? Or
2: Generally speaking, the term uh, church fathers refers to early Christian period, uh, the first few centuries of the, of the Christian period, the uh, and the popes, of course, are a separate group of guys. Yeah. Um, the popes in the 15th century and 16th century did use astrologers. Um, and for instance, Luca Gorico predicted the ascension to the, uh, the cathedral, the, to the papacy of Alessandro Farnese and was made bishop of two sees in Italy result of a successful prediction. Uh, But it isn't something which is generally done um, as far as I know since that time nor was it a big deal for for popes to use astrologers in the Middle Ages per se. Although some of the popes were astrologers uh, or at least were facile enough in the mathematics and astronomy to be so. Gerbert who became Sylvester II is one of these uh, fellows who's reputed to have been uh, a pope who was an astrologer and also by some claimed to be a magician as well. Um, as far as what we're doing, uh, it's hoped that uh, what we can do is bring about a certain elevation in the standard of astrology among astrologers and uh, make people rec- uh, in the general public realize that there was far more to astrology and is far more to astrology than uh, is generally thought to be the case. Perhaps that will have the effect of uh, raising astrology to a, uh, an acceptable science. Perhaps it will. But at least it will, it will certainly make better astrology.
0: Will we find that astrologers are going to need to go out and learn Greek philosophy and uh, have a broader world view so that they can absorb this material.
3: Uh, I would be a little reluctant to say that every astrologer has to go out and learn Greek philosophy, but I think an understanding of Greek philosophy needs to become much more widespread in the astrological community. Uh, A a thorough knowledge of Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, or whomever, is not exactly essential for a day-to-day counseling session. But at the same time, if astrologers had a better philosophical foundation in these areas, they might be less easily caught up by skeptics, uh, scientific types, debunkers, and so forth, who basically trip astrologers up, in part because they get the astrologer operating from the modern worldview and then trying to defend astrology within it, Whereas the correct practice is the astrologer to be operating outside of the modern worldview and in, a, in the more ancient one, which astrology is not a problem.
2: Yeah, I would say that, that it's not so much a matter that astrologers should be told to go out and study this stuff. I don't think it's going to be necessary. I think what's going to happen is that when they see what's being done, they're going to want to go out and get this stuff. It's going to be a spontaneous sort of an affair.
1: There be a great amount of that in the notes to these books, by the way, so it's not as if you have to go take a course in it. I mean, we're not talking about reading all the works of the ancients. I mean, to some extent, it's a matter of presenting the, the major concepts to people which will be presented and represented again and again. And I think they can be assimilated fairly readily
3: in that fashion. As a matter of fact, uh, let me take the controversial position, not only the controversial on this couch, but I might be controversial <laughs> elsewhere, of uh, saying that we strongly recommend they do not go out and take university academic courses mm-hmm. in these philosophies mm-hmm. because they have been systematically gutted by 18th and 19th century misunderstandings of what they really are about. What is actually much better for them to do is to encounter the philosophy through these books and then go and read the original books hopefully with us steering them to the better rather than the worst translations uh, or maybe even at some point providing our own so they can actually experience the philosophy on its native ground without being uh, read through the positivistic and materialistic biases of the modern scholars
0: so obviously you who are doing the translating are holding in your hands Uh, responsibility that goes far beyond saying that this word in Greek means this word in English, Mm -hmm. that you must be versed as, not only as linguists, but as philosophers to understand the background and as astrologers to understand how to put it all together. So that what people are going to be getting is not just a literal translation of ancient books, but truly a remarkable work that takes these these original works and puts them in some sort of context and yes. explains and interprets them.
1: As a matter of fact, all of us are, are quite steeped in philosophical issues and have read widely in, in original sources <clears throat> to the extent that we could. So I feel that our, that our prior training really allows us to deal with these philosophical issues what, with, with some success. We
3: all have a curious strength, which will probably be viewed by mainstream society as weakness, which is that it is a tendency of our culture to specialize to the nth degree the old joke being a specialist is a person who knows more and more about less and less until finally you know it's everything about nothing um well we're we're generalists we have knowledge in a wide variety of fields and the virtue of this is that we can actually look over this wide variety see the interaction and see the interplay without somebody saying well, you can't do this because you're not trained in this field, you're not trained in that field, and so on and so forth. To do this work properly actually requires being this kind of a generalist, and we seriously question whether your typical university-trained scholar would have the overview necessary to put these things together.
0: So we're talking about an ecological point of view here where you recognize how all the things are connected together and are able to present them in some unified pattern.
1: Yes, I would say so. I mean, we, we, the annotations in the booklets will like that continually. Some of them will be speculations too. Again, we're not. One feature of this translation program is that we we are not trying to to speak you know, ex cathedra here. Um, the idea is we want to be free to speculate about things i think that this means this and then in the later in a later edition say i was wrong about that it doesn't mean that at all we would like to open up discussion and we particularly would like to encourage responses from the people who are subscribing this is very important to us not only does it help us do do the work better but it keeps us from getting stale I mean, it's easy to fall into a pattern, you say, I think that this is what this is about, and you keep following it through, so you start you start ignoring other bits of evidence, but sometimes a kind of open reaction from uh, from people who don't necessarily know much about philosophy can sometimes be very, very healthy for this kind of project. So when we say we want feedback from the readers, this is not just an advertising boy, it's really serious, at least it is for me. I me mean, too. And as a matter of fact, we've already had that from some of our people. Um um, we actually received a th- I received a phone call from a person who was actually in our audience I believe, at the moment, and uh, he was responding to a rather scholarly article that I had written in Arhat Journal, which which happens to discuss a lot of the sort of really abstract and somewhat difficult issues that come up in the translation project. That's what it, what its attention is, and this uh, person had had read this article and had. Responded to it from an astrological point of view, saying there's something here that isn't consistent. In other words, you're saying that there's an, an, an Aristotelian way of looking uh, looking at what the planet Venus and the planet Mars, or the planet uh, the planet Venus and the moon does to the atmosphere, whereas it seems to me that isn't consistent with astrological symbolism. And and this was very interesting as an interaction because it caused me to go rethink how I had translated that passage. And so this is the, this is this is an exceptionally valuable way to have interaction with the readership. And so we're not trying to dictate, we're just trying to open up. Mm-hmm. So
4: I, I, have, I have another thought. This is um, will there be if you got the attention you were talking about the scholars, Rob, and the university, would there be hostility uh, to your to what <laughs> you're doing? I was thinking about anytime there's a breakthrough in science or medicine and it breaks with the what they thought was the truth or the laws that were operating, and now you're coming up with these. Um, you're not going for
3: that kind of audience. But I have no doubt we will be regarded as being exceedingly presumptuous, yes. uh, and our credentials will be questioned right and left. And I have also no doubt that if they, if, if we do attract their attention, and are not instantly dismissed as being incompetent a priori. Um, that they will pick the translations apart left and right. Now the last move, picking the translations apart left and right, I think I can safely say our translators would welcome because it would give us something to respond to, and possibly quite you know improve the translations. We're not opposed to that. But uh, if on the other hand we are simply uh, rejected out of hand, no pun intended, because um, <laughs> because we're astrologers and not and not highly trained university linguists. And for that reason, they uh, condemn us. And I think the uh, proper reaction, the reaction of the astrological community should be to ignore them.
4: I have another question for Rob. What is your vision? I heard you say something uh, earlier today that this is what you were born for, this, this work that you're doing right now. And I'm curious as to what your vision is. Um, for the next over the next four or five, maybe even ten years, where this is going. Perhaps
3: you've said that already,
4: but I like
3: that. Well where the whole thing is going is a little hard for me to say uh clearly outside beyond what I've said already, but uh what I'll give you my plan. Yes,
4: that's what
3: I um, <coughs> outside of being involved as editor of the translations, uh I see my role as being the conveyor of the material to the astrological community in such a form that it can really begin to digest it and integrate it into its contemporary practice. I'm not just—I'm not saying I'm the only one doing this, but that's, that is a task I see for myself and anyone else who cares to take it on. Um, one of the things I started doing before the project began was writing an introduction of the astrological tradition of the West as it actually is, rather than modern astrology. And I quickly began running into issue after issue where I simply didn't know where things were really unclear. Let me, let me give you a concrete example of one issue that is surfacing, but I can't yet say is fully proven. Uh, in astrology from the Middle Ages and forward, a great deal of emphasis was placed on the qualities of the elements in the triplicities. Okay, so something every astrologer is familiar. Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius are fire signs. Well, most modern astrologers simply say they are fire signs. But to a medieval astrologer, that meant that they were hot and dry. And astrological medicine from the Muslim period through the Renaissance was based on these qualities. I'm seeing a great deal of evidence which suggests that the elements in the triplicities are not, in fact, elements made out of double qualities like that at all. See, there, there are two sets of four elements in the ancient world. There's the Aristotelian set, where every element is a pair of qualities like fire is hot and dry, water is cold and wet, air is warm and wet, and uh, earth is cold and dry. Well, it appears that shortly after Aristotle, the Stoics redefined the elements. Same four elements, but fire, instead of being hot and dry, was merely hot. Earth, instead of being cold and dry, was merely dry water instead of being cold and wet was merely wet, and air instead of being warm and wet was cold. Total change. And the astrologers who are the first that we see using the elements for the triplicities appear to be Stoics. We don't see Ptolemy, who is an Aristotelian, using the elements for the triplicities at all, not even implicitly. Whenever Ptolemy talks about elements, he's talking about Aristotelian elements, and and he seldom does. He usually talks about hot, cold, wet, and dry. Well, the theory of the four humors, which is the basis of all medieval and early Renaissance medicine, uh, is directly related to this idea of the triplicities being made out of elements like pairs and qualities. And now it turns out, possibly, that this was an error in the tradition. And that consequently, whatever validity the humor theory may have, and I think actually it may have quite a bit of validity as long as you're not thinking mechanistically, but psychosomatically. Uh, then it turns out that all diagnosis based on the horoscope using the emphasis on the elements and the triplicities could have been wrong and this would of course weaken the tradition right from the get-go because it's a fundamental factual misunderstanding about the nature of the elements
0: and so do you think that today that we may find ourselves in a place five years from now when you have translated you know a a, a total of a hundred of these various works that we may find ourselves in a place where there is no tradition supporting what modern astrology is doing and there's a requirement to rewrite it or, or redo it i don't it. think it'll be that bad uh
3: but i think we'll have to rewrite and rethink an awful lot of modern astrology but i, I think the it, it modern astrology is not so much wrong as it's a small piece of the whole and what we'll do is put back the other pieces there are some things like the elements of modern astrology may be out and out of wrong but uh, mostly, I think it's a, a matter of putting back pieces. Yeah, the,
2: this issue of the elements, the humors, and, and the elementata the primitive qualities is an interesting question with regards to the development of, of astrology from the ancient period through the Middle, to the Middle Ages. Because uh, you find, for instance, in Guido Bonatti's Libra Astronomia, a description of the relationship of the elementata, elementata, or the primitive qualities, to the elementa, or the elements which to some degree seems to support Rob's uh, analysis of the situation. Um, but you have a very big body of uh, medical lore um, quite apart from astrology, uh, which is thoroughly based upon the humors and elemental theory uh, deriving not from directly from the Stoics, but from Galen and Hippocrates. Uh, in Greek science, uh, Hippocrates being a good deal older all uh, and Galen's work the Greco-Roman period, uh, which uh, is still, in fact, a, the major medical system used in the Islamic world uh, in areas like uh, the Far East and in Afghanistan, and so on and so forth. So before we get too certain about what's happening here, we have to compare not just the astrological tradition, not
3: just the philosophical tradition, but also their interface with the medical
2: tradition as well.
3: Yeah, I don't think, in fact, that the discovery. or rather the potential discovery that seems to be looming here about Felicity's is actually going to disturb the humoral theory of medicine particularly, so much as it disturbs the attempt to diagnose from a horoscope using the humoral theory. And it's that interface between astrology and medicine that this uh, challenges, not the actual medical method.
0: Much of of modern astrology today has moved uh, into the computer field. Where people are able to do uh, intricate pieces of work that they never would, would have been able to do before computers because the calculation time would have been just unacceptable. When you talk about the ancient astrology, does it lend itself to uh, computerization or uh, is it very, uh, does it have its little defined boxes or is it much vaguer? How will uh,
3: actually, I can answer that question very clearly because I've already begun working on it, being a computer programmer, among other things. The answer is it is much more computerizable than modern astrology because it has much more definite procedures for doing things. There's much less room left for impressionism, intuition, and fudging. Uh, it's still going to require a great deal of intuition to actually turn a collection of squiggles onto a, on a page consisting of the horoscope mm-hmm. into a concrete analysis of a person, but um, uh, we already have in some of our software printouts that break the chart down into dignities and debilities according to a renaissance, actually, technique uh, that is really a pain to do by hand. Not impossible, but just a pain. And there it all is laid out, and you can immediately start uh, applying techniques like this uh, very rapidly, so, uh, I think that, I think this is actually an extremely computerizable system. Hindu astrology has the same has the same peculiarity. It's very very computerizable because, as I say, there are there are definite techniques for going from A to Z. Now they may we may have to adjust these techniques, but they're there.
2: Now, on the other hand, one can also say, for those people who are not inclined to use computers, and particularly for those who are somewhat gun shy of mathematics and arithmetic, that medieval astrology, in particular lends itself to uh, simplified mathematical methods. Uh, very, the whole thing is wherever possible symbolic and just a matter of counting. It's not. Uh, it's, it's quite different from the 19th century style, uh, primary directions-based, Placidian, uh, mathematically intensive and very scary to many people, uh, astrology. It's something which is uh, user-friendly, uh, to be a little bit anachronistic in my medical.
3: <laughs> as a matter of fact, the, uh, when I say the stuff lends itself to computerization, uh, it, it is, it, uh, I agree with you, it, it isn't usually mathematics the computer is doing, it's just right. doing table lookups for you fast. Right. It's very, it, it is quite possible to do it by hand and infinitely easier than doing the kind of well technology as you were just talking about, which isn't even easy on a computer.
0: Do we have any other audience or questions here? Why would, what was the reason these books weren't translated before? If There's so much valuable philosophic material in there. Was it just prejudice against... No, yes,
2: that's the one <laughs> yeah, so. okay. Yes, no, I say no. <laughs> All right. Um, the before is, is perhaps the, the point which in which Bob and I would differ on this, where the before happens. Uh, if we place the before in the 19th century, the reason is largely because of the change in the nature of society, the change in the nature of education that occurred in the 19th century. Uh, you had the rise of industrialism and the, that necessitated an entirely different viewpoint uh, in terms of education, how people were educated and how much emphasis you placed, for instance, upon classical languages. Then on top of that, you had the whole scientific and enlightenment attitude that moved people out of the uh, area of astrology entirely. Uh, the latter part of it is a matter of prejudice. There's no question about that. But the former part of it is a matter of, of the selectivity, the, the, the different designs or needs of the society as a whole. So there weren't as many people around who had any uh, ability to get into these older texts.
1: Although most of the texts were translated into Latin. Most of the Greek texts were translated into Latin in the 1500s and so. And it's a bit of a mystery to me why it didn't uh, create a kind of astrological renaissance at that time, the way the translation of Greek mathematical writings created uh, sort of a, a mathematical renaissance and, and scientific writings creating a scientific renaissance. But for some reason, it didn't quite happen with the astrological material. I can offer a theory.
3: Yes. Um, I don't think astrology in the Renaissance had quite the sense uh, that the other sciences had of being a broken tradition. Now, in fact, it was a broken but I think astrologers felt that they were, in fact, in possession of most of the important information. So that what you find in the Renaissance is astrologers citing other Renaissance astrologers and Ptolemy, but not too many of the other people.
1: It could be that. And also, in the mathematical area, for example, the people in the Renaissance were able to point very clear cases in which the ancient techniques were superior to the ones they had, uh, I mean, just unequivocally, I mean, certain Greek mathematicians were able to solve geometrical problems. Uh, that the people in the Renaissance simply couldn't solve. And as a matter of fact, they would tend to consider impossible in some way, but the Greeks were able to do that. So, but in astrology, you wouldn't have unequivocal evidence of the superiority of ancient astrology. You wouldn't have some you know, example of something that somebody had been able to do better. So the idea that there had been a wiser age of astrologers would not have such quite such a profound effect on people at that time. So uh, that seems to be a supporting do along with
2: the The paradox is there is that the, the great astrologers, in the, in the, from the point of view of the Renaissance, were ninth century yes. Arabic fellows like al right, That's right. Yes. And they had Al-Mashar's works. That's
1: right. no question yeah. about that. But in more modern times, uh, these texts, these edited texts have been available throughout the 20th century. and they. Uh, but the problem is they, they, they were not in the hands of astrologers. I mean, they were just in the hands of academic scholars who were doing who were doing even the text editing for reasons that had nothing to do with astrology. Usually they were trying to find if there was some uh, history of astronomy, something about the history of astronomy that they could find in the astrological texts. Occasionally they were interested in cultural matters, you know, well, what was an Egyptian, Egyptian temple like, 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 or something like that. But they were always ulterior motives. Nobody ever read the texts on their own for, for their own sake, okay, just to see what they have. And we think it's very important never to prejudge
3: a book in that way. I have a point I want to make about this. Uh, there have actually been a few astrologers in recent times who have read some of these books. Uh, one of the things that Project Hindsight is going to be a corrective to is the attitude of these astrologers. I won't name names. Quite a few of them are still alive. But not in
2: this room. But not in this Certainly <laughs> not in this world. <laughs> <on> <laughs>
3: There are a number of people who have written about ancient and classical astrology in modern times who have done so just dripping with superiority. If only modern astrology understood the profound wisdom of the ancients, and you can just sort of see as, a, as, as footnotes underlying the whole text written in visible ink, I can read this stuff, you guys can't, you're all ignoramuses. Uh, what we're here for, quite frankly, is a democratization of this process. Uh, if astrologers, after we're finished with our work, if astrologers are ignorant of the ancient material, it would be by choice. But the fact of the matter is, these these people who have read some of the ancient works were, by and large, lucky that they had access to the material. They were in a town with the right library nearby, they had the right connections. A few of them have done translations which are creditable and do democratize the process, although there's one translation in particular, I can think of it's currently in print. You have a hell of a time getting out of its publisher, even though it's an astrological source. Um, and, and just generally speaking, astrologers have had the tragic, made the tragic mistake of using this to establish their own superiority over other astrologers rather than sharing the information with the community. This is not something we are going to
2: do. Right at the, at the beginning of the reintroduction of astrology into Western society in the 1870s, early 1900s. Uh, the Theosophic Society played a very major role in this transmission of astrology into the society. They weren't alone, but they, they really boosted up quite a bit. And they In this country, they were abetted very largely by uh, 30 or 40 years of transcendentalism that had happened prior to the, the rise of the Theosophic Society, where an interest was redeveloped in astrology. But the philosophical and moral Uh, preferences of the Theosophic Society led them to adopt a peculiar attitude towards what kind of astrology they were going to talk about, what kind of astrology they were going to uh, promulgate, and what kind of astrology they would uh, support. So uh, given the fact that though the uh, Theosophic Society was founded in New York in 1875, um, uh, Americans always tend to be pretty Eurocentric really, it wasn't long before the Theosophic Society relocated its main offices to London and then over to Ajur in India. And uh, the English domination of the um, content of the, and direction of theosophy uh, has a, the effect of increasing the Calvinistic uh, preferences of Theosophic Society over what kind of astrology they're going to talk about. So right, right there you have a kind of a censorship, uh, not necessarily an intentional one, but a certain preference and direction that that the whole tradition way.
0: So to to breeze back to where we began for all of our audience, uh, we are standing at a major threshold in astrology where not only are we getting enormous amounts of information from what could be called new discoveries, talking about quasars, talking about asteroids, Uh, talking about all kinds of new astronomical pieces of data that we couldn't have known about because we didn't have the instruments to know about it, And that's bringing in new energy and, and dealing with how to interpret that and how to integrate that into working with individuals. And then at the same time, as you say, you are democratizing the past and bringing it forward and putting it in people's hands so that astrologers of today, as opposed to astrologers even 20 years ago, will have this incredible array. Even three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Will have this incredible array of information available to them that will take them from ancient Greece to the 21st century, and hopefully the ferment that comes out of finding the synergy and how one blends those pieces of information together will indeed take us to that astrological renaissance that didn't happen in the 1500s, and that hopefully will be happening with the work that you're doing here with Project Hindsight. And I think that all of us can say, uh, as astrologers who will be benefiting from this, thank you for your work, for your foresight in putting together project high <laughs> and for dedicating your talents and your whole accumulation of life knowledge to handing to all of us some remarkable pieces of information that could have never been known otherwise thank you